Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Okay, if you felt like this week was a whole year, I'm here to tell you that you are not alone. On Thursday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on Donald Trump's ballot eligibility under the 14th Amendment. And the ball is gonna be back in their court tomorrow as Trump prepares an appeal on presidential immunity. Safe to say I have about a million questions for the law firm of Weissman and Katiel, and we're gonna get through as many as we possibly can. Plus, Congressman Adam Schiff is here, and I can't wait to hear what he has to say about one of the most dangerous things we've ever heard Trump say, basically inviting a Russian attack on our NATO allies. Also today, special counsel Robert Hur decided not to charge Joe Biden and instead took it upon himself to editorialize about his age and memory. Let's just say I've got a few things to get off my chest about that one. And later, we'll break down Tucker Carlson's pep rally with Vladimir Putin and show you what he used to say about the Russian dictator. We dug into the archives of Tucker's time here at MSNBC when he was singing a much different tune. Well, it was a hell of a news week again. I have hundreds of pages, literally hundreds, of court rulings and transcripts and special counsel reports. But some of the most significant things that happened this week seem to have already somehow moved through the news cycle in favor of endless, and I mean endless, coverage of whether a man who is four years older than his opponent is simply too old to be president. So we're going to spend most of our time on the things that actually warrant our focus. On Thursday, for a little over two hours, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on whether or not former President Donald Trump can be kicked off the Colorado ballot because, of course, of his role as part of the insurrection on January 6th. Now, no matter what happens from here and how they rule, that's a thing that actually happened, and it's historic in and of itself. And tomorrow, after a stinging defeat from the appeals court, the Trump team is expected to ask the Supreme Court to hear his case about presidential immunity. Now, remember, his lawyer's claim is that he could have SEAL Team 6 assassinated his political rival as long as Congress is cool with it, then he would be immune from prosecution. That's their argument on that one. And yes, there was also the special counsel report on President Biden from renowned neurologist and psychologist Robert Hur. Lots of school he attended. We will get to that too, I promise, because I have lots of thoughts to share, I promise you. And truth be told, we had planned to start the show today by talking about the Supreme Court and all of the legal developments here this week, because there were a lot and they're all important. And we're still going to discuss all of it today at length. But we decided late last night that it was important to start today with something alarming Donald Trump said at a rally yesterday in South Carolina, because it's far too easy to be numb to it all, far too easy to ignore it, all the crazy things he says, often within the same speeches. But Trump is telling us what he's going to do. And it's important to listen and also talk about what the impact would actually be of what he's telling us. Now, before we play it, here's a little background. Trump has, of course, long been a big critic and skeptic of NATO, the alliance that's held the world order together for three quarters of a century. It's been pretty vital and which came to the defense of the United States, remember, shortly after 9-11. 
His campaign website even contains this vague but very ominous sentence. We have to finish the process we began under my administration of fundamentally reevaluating NATO's purpose and NATO's mission. Now, why does that matter? Well, first of all, it has led to fears among our European allies, key partners around the world, that if Trump wins, he's going to pull out of NATO altogether. During a time, and this is vitally important, in which a Russian dictator is waging the first ground war in Europe since World War II. But yesterday, in South Carolina, Trump took things about a mile further than that. He said if NATO countries don't pay more, the U.S. will break its commitment to protect them against a Russian attack. And he said he would encourage, encourage Russia to do whatever the hell they want to those countries. Here it is. NATO was busted until I came along. I said, everybody's going to pay. They said, well, if we don't pay, are you still going to protect us? I said, absolutely not. They couldn't believe the answer. One of the presidents of a big country stood up, said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. Now, look, he says a lot of stuff, but that's the Republican frontrunner for the president of the United States signaling to the Kremlin that he'll give them a free hand to invade their European neighbors if he's given a second term. And as commander in chief, he would have the United States stand back and watch it happen. Let's be clear about what that would mean. Any attack on a NATO ally would trigger a massive show of force by its members across the world. That's because under Article 5, an attack on one is considered an attack on all. Just take it from the NATO Secretary General, who responded to Trump's comments with this, quote, any suggestion that allies will not defend each other undermines all of our security, including that of the U.S., and puts American and European soldiers at increased risk. And Donald Trump is not only saying he wouldn't come to the defense of a NATO ally, he's inviting Russia to attack them. I just cannot tell you how terrifying that type of type of language is for our allies sitting and hearing and listening to what he's saying and also how happy it must make Vladimir Putin. That's more than the Kremlin could have asked for, even from Donald Trump. Joining me now is someone who understands these stakes here better than almost anyone. Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff. Congressman, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. And I'm so grateful to have your expertise, given what I just started the show talking about. I guess we shouldn't be surprised but when you were chair of the House Intel Committee, and, and since then, of course, you've spent a good amount of time looking at Donald Trump and Russia. How do you think Vladimir Putin heard remarks like the ones he made yesterday? Oh, Putin must be absolutely thrilled. Uh, if you look at it from Putin's perspective, you know, the war isn't going well in Ukraine for Russia. Uh, Russians keep coming back in body bags. NATO is enlarging around him with two new nations uh, joining NATO. NATO is strengthening uh, and along comes Donald Trump, uh, there to snatch uh, defeat from the jaws of victory uh, for Russia and, mm -hmm. and and for the United States uh, and our NATO allies. Um, it, it couldn't come at a worse time. Uh, Trump's Republican Party is holding up aid for Ukraine. Uh, Trump is the gift that won't stop giving to Vladimir Putin. Uh, and, the, you know, he thinks, I'm sure, uh, Donald Trump thinks this makes him sound strong, but it just makes him look like an incredibly weak leader. Uh, weak in not bolstering our alliances, weak in un undermining our security. Uh, we have benefited from that NATO alliance uh, as much, if not more, than any other nation. 
Uh, and for him to belittle it this way, for him to signal to our allies, you can't rely on America anymore. Uh, it just couldn't be more dangerous and destructive. It's such an important point, as you just noted, simultaneously right now, they, there is no movement in moving forward funding to support Ukraine in the war against Russia. And it's also important. I mean, 2016 feels like a long time ago, but a lot of these things could repeat themselves. As you think about kind of this Trump-Putin relationship, if he gets a second term, what concerns you the most? What concerns me the most is that essentially he forsakes our allies, uh, that he realigns the United States with the dictators of the world. Uh, He makes common cause with fellow autocrats. Uh, He seems to admire dictators. He seems to have nothing but disdain for democracies. Uh, That kind of realignment, that kind of tearing down of an international law-based order, which has protected the United States and done so much to uh, increase and improve our security, would be so destabilizing, destabilizing to us uh, security-wise, destabilizing in terms of our economy, which would take a colossal hit. Um, but we would, we would give up our historic responsibility of defending democracy. Uh, and as we would see our own democracy at home uh, undermined, we would also see the cause of democracy around the globe suffer real body blow. Are you worried um, that Putin could be attempting and the Kremlin could be attempting to intervene in our election in 2024? And should we all be spending more time talking about that? I am very concerned about it. Uh, It wouldn't be the first time that Russia has intervened in our election. It wouldn't be the first time they've done it to try to help elect Donald Trump. Uh, And they have so much more at stake today than they did back in 2016. Uh, With the war going on in Ukraine, uh, with uh, NATO enlarging around it, Uh, They feel beleaguered. Uh, And here comes Donald Trump, a real lifeline. They have more at stake. They have less reason to avoid risk. The United States is supporting uh, Ukraine in the war or has been until Trump's influence on the GOP. So they have more at stake now than they did before. They have less risk aversion than they did before. Mm. So, yes, we should fully expect them to engage. It's just a question of how much they engage. More at stake now. Such an important thing for people to remember. As as I noted earlier, there's a lot of legal news this week, and I want to get to that. I want to start with Robert Hur's report. First, what was your overall reaction to that report? Uh, You know, as a former federal prosecutor, my reaction was Robert Hur couldn't make a legal case against Joe Biden. So he decided to make a political case against Joe Biden. Uh, What he did was willful. (laughs) That is Robert Hur. What he did was deliberate. What he did, he knew would damage uh, Joe Biden politically and gratify Donald Trump. It was a political decision that flies in the face of what Department of Justice policy is. Uh, And I can tell you this, if Robert Hur were a line prosecutor, he would Mm. be disciplined or fired. Uh, You don't do that. You Mm. set out, okay, you know, we could bring a case where we can't, but gratuitously involving yourself in an election campaign Uh, In fact, during a campaign, you make every effort not to do anything suggesting politics. Uh, What he did was was quite deliberate uh, and destructive and and also just plain false. What I mean, you're right. It's interesting to hear you say he would be fired if in a range of circumstances. Do you think that he should appear before Congress and ask and answer some questions? Would you like to see that happen? I think he will probably be invited by the Republicans because they could count on him to continue violating department policy and bashing mm-hmm. Joe Biden. Uh, I think they would view that as a great political gift. 
But this is so horribly inappropriate. Uh, he couldn't make a legal case. And so he's doing what he can to damage Joe Biden. Uh, you know, look, I sat in on a lot of depositions. I remember deposing Carl Rowe. I can't remember how many dozens and dozens and dozens of times that uh, Rowe said he couldn't recall. Uh, mm-hmm. And nobody, you know, questioned his cognitive ability. It was quite transparent uh, in the case of Carl Rowe, what he was doing. But uh, clients are told, hey, if you don't remember specifically the facts of things that happened years ago, which is not uncommon, you know, don't try to reinvent what took place. Uh, and there's nothing, I think, unusual about a deposition uh, in which people can't recall details of years ago. But to to extrapolate from that and make a political attack, uh, that, that's just hackery by Mr. Herr. In fact, Ivanka Trump, I think, said that about 29 or 30 times I, I read this morning. Before I let you go quickly, I wanted to ask, I mean, there are certain limitations, of course, under the special counsel statute. But do you wish Attorney General Merrick Garland would have done something differently here? Could he have? Uh, he could have. He could have appointed someone else. He could have appointed uh, a different special counsel appointed by a different uh, the president of a different party. But, you know, Merrick Garland has really bent over backwards to do the right thing to, you know, withdraw the department from the terrible uh, reputation it had under Trump of being politicized. Uh, and tragically, that requires you to uh, anticipate a certain amount of professionalism and faith in the system and faith in the people who are appointed. And of course, that confidence, that expectation was completely betrayed here, completely betrayed. Uh, and so, you know, in hindsight, it's too easy to say he mm. should have just appointed someone he knew would be more impartial. But, uh, you know, ideally, you appoint a prosecutor that will improve public confidence in the report. You don't expect them to be a hack. And in this case, uh, he misjudged Mr. Herm. Congressman Adam Schiff, I always appreciate your broad range of expertise. I really thank you for joining me this afternoon. And coming up, will the Supreme Court rule for Donald Trump on the 14th Amendment? And will they take up Trump's appeal on presidential immunity, which we're expecting tomorrow? We've never needed the law firm of Andrew Weissman and Neil Katyal more. They've been working around the clock the last couple of days. And there comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Coming up after a quick break. We'll be right back. There was one moment from Thursday's argument in the Supreme Court over the 14th Amendment when two huge but separate legal matters seemed to collide, the 14th Amendment and Donald Trump's claim of presidential immunity. 
just to be clear, under 2383, you agree that someone could be prosecuted for insurrection by federal prosecutors and if convicted could be or shall be disqualified then from office. Yes, but the only caveat that I would add is that our client is arguing that he has presidential immunity. So we would not concede that he can be prosecuted for what he did on January 6th under 23. Understood. Asking a, yes. a question about the theory of 2383. Thank you. Got it. So someone can be prosecuted for insurrection, just not Donald Trump, because according to him, he's immune, except an appeals court just said he's not. Justice Kavanaugh clearly didn't want to go any further on that issue, but the question of presidential immunity is likely going to land right in the Supreme Court's lap maybe tomorrow. Joining me now is a who else but our in-house law firm, everybody's favorite legal experts. Neil Katyal is the former acting U.S. Solicitor General. Andrew Weissman is the former general counsel at the FBI and a senior member of special counsel Robert Mueller's team. There is so much to get to, hence the 500 pages on my desk. But, Neil, I, I wanted to just start with sort of the point I just made there, which is sort of the, the overlap, not from a legal sense, but the fact that they're both in their laps of the 14th Amendment case and the immunity case. They're not, again, legally the same thing, of course, but these justices are human beings, all nine of them. How do you see them impacting one another, if at all? I think that there was a chance that they could have impacted one another, um, but I think in the end, it's not going, they'll, they'll see these as two separate issues. I mean, last week, as you know, I was very concerned about whether or not we would get a decision in time from the Court of Appeals on the absolute immunity question. And I'm feeling much better now. We've gotten a decision. It's substantively really good. It shows our legal system at its best. Three judges, one of whom's a prominent conservative, saying, Donald Trump, you got no absolute immunity, and setting a procedural timetable that would give the case to Judge mm -hmm. Chutkin as early as tomorrow if there wasn't a run to the Supreme Court, which Trump will do. I think in the end, that opinion is the kind of thing that the Supreme Court won't touch with a 10-foot pole. It's thorough, it's well-reasoned, it's unanimous, and most importantly, it's obviously correct. So I think that's what's going to happen there. Now, at the same time, Andrew, there's an expectation by many, uh, maybe both of you, that they're not going to rule to kick Trump off the ballot in Colorado. I mean, that seems a little bit like it's giving a win to one side, essentially, but it's not how it's supposed to work. They're, they're, of course, supposed to look at each case under the law. Neil's saying they will. But what do you think? Do you, do you think they will be? What do you expect? You know, I, it's hard to imagine, given what happened this week, that they're really looking forward to taking a case where they have this political hot potato. And frankly, even if they're looking at this as a sort of, we want to give with one hand and take with another, in other words, to appear even-handed, that would counsel in favor of not taking the immunity appeal. Because if they take it, that essentially is the Donald Trump win. They're not going to take the case to reverse the D.C. decision on immunity. Um, that is just so rock solid. They'd only be taking it to put their imprimatur on it to say, you know, this hasn't been ruled on by the Supreme Court, so we're going to take it. But if they do that, they will again be delaying the start of that D.C. trial. It's the worst possible vehicle to uh, make that ruling. So if they really want to appear Solomonic, it would be to not take this case. And frankly, again, as Neil, I agree with, is on the merits, the D.C. case is so obviously right. Mm. That decision is is rock solid. 
Well, let me, Neil, let me go there again. So much legal news. So, so let's jump to this Robert Hur report, because you, when it comes to transparency, you made a point about Attorney General Merrick Garland's efforts this week once it was confirmed that Hur's report wouldn't be redacted. You wrote, quote, if we had Trump's AG, we wouldn't have to wait weeks to see the report, uh, et cetera. Clearly, Hur would, Hur went outside the scope of what's typically in a report. What else could Garland have done here? Is there something you wish he would have done differently? I do. So when I was a young Justice Department staffer, I wrote the special counsel regulations that give Robert Hur its power. And in those regulations, we said in general that we don't anticipate the report of the special counsels to be public. And in particular, we isolated the lurid language that was used in the Ken Starr report about Monica Lewinsky and other things as an example of that. Now, look, I believe in transparency, and I think that the reports in general should be given, mm-hmm. but, but lurid stuff, stuff that strays beyond, I think should not. And I was frankly shocked to see in this report a swipe at our president for having for being old and having a faulty memory. That just has no place whatsoever in Justice Department traditions, guidelines, and the like, as you just heard Congressman Schiff say a moment ago. And I'm surprised that Attorney General Garland didn't push back on that part and not either ask for that to be removed, as it should have been, mm. or at least redacted. Um, you know, there's a Justice Department tradition that you don't interfere with presidential elections. This seems like the height of interference. It's gratuitous. And hers own statements throughout the report say there was nothing to this investigation, that there were obviously innocent explanations for what Biden was doing. So to add that at the end of the report, I just think was totally wrong and inappropriate and deserves condemnation. Yeah, I mean, to your point, it was page. It was after page two hundred when he said he didn't wittingly have the infer- take the take the documents or have the documents, which you could have said that earlier. Andrew, you both have been on TV educating us, informing us a lot about this and many other things. I have rarely seen you as fired and outraged talking about something as I've heard you talking about Robert Hur's report these couple of days. And Neil kind of touched on this. I mean, it does you as people who both of you have worked in public service in the judiciary. If, I know he's not probably a viewer of the show. If, if he is, hello, Robert Hur. But what would you say to him right now if he was watching? So I think the reason that you're hearing that tone with respect to Neil and and the, my tone is because there's nothing that bothers um, prosecutors and former prosecutors more than seeing people who do not take their oath of office and their obligation and the limits of um, that role seriously. Um, And, you know, that is what I think you're seeing people react to. I think the first thing I just want to say is I think the press needs to do a better job of reading the report because it keeps on getting reported as if um, Robert Herr has found that there was a criminal violation, but as a matter of discretion, he doesn't think it should go forward. That is not what he found. He found that there was no evidence to support a criminal violation. He found, as Neil said, innocent explanations. And not only did he say we can't refute them, he said we found proof to support Mm. those innocent explanations. So that's point one. Um, And point two, what I would say to Rob Herr is— 
your role is not to be James Comey 2.0. We have seen that movie. You are not to put a finger on the scale of politics. Once you determine that there is an insufficient evidence to recommend going forward, that ends the equation. It is for other people to make the case for one person to run for office or another person to run for office and what they're, whether they're equipped to do that or not. And by the way, nothing I'm saying is sort of weighing in on that. I'm talking about the role of somebody at the Department of Justice. And I also agree with Neil that the attorney general has an independent obligation because the attorney general is the one who makes the report public under the rules, not Rob Herr. And he had the absolute authority to adhere to the the written rules of the Department of Justice, um, which don't permit any line prosecutor to do what happened here. Neil Katiel and Andrew Weissman, uh, good, good at reminding everybody should read the report before they're reporting on it. Important, important guidance there. Um, thank you both, as always, for joining us this afternoon. And coming up, this presidential race is going to be between an 81-year-old and a 77-year-old, but only one of them is facing 91 criminal counts, was found liable for sexual abuse and attempted coup. I've been waiting all weekend to get a few things off my chest, and we'll do that next. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you that the report from special counsel Robert Hur was a barrel of good news for the president. It wasn't. And no reasonable person will tell you that a report showing the president had classified information sitting in a cardboard box in his garage is a good thing. Obviously, it's not. In short, what Biden has been found to have done is sloppy. But as a Trump-appointed district attorney concluded, it was not criminal. And in the same report, special counsel Hur also had this to say. After being given multiple chances to return classified documents and avoid prosecution, Mr. Trump allegedly did the opposite. According to the indictment, he not only refused to return the documents for many months, but he also obstructed justice by enlisting others to destroy evidence and then to lie about it. Now, in contrast, Mr. Biden turned in classified documents, consented to the search of multiple locations, including his homes, sat for a voluntary interview and in other ways cooperated with the investigation. But this pretty clear contrast hasn't been the focus at all in the aftermath of the Hur report at all, really. And that's in large part because Robert Hur threw a big old gift to the Trump political team in his report as well. I wasn't aware that he was also a doctor, but he included this line basically questioning the cognitive abilities of Joe Biden. And that has been the major focus of coverage about the Hur report. Now, I'm also not going to sit here and pretend that the president is a young sprite. He isn't. He would tell you he's not either. He's 81 years old. It's not a narrative. It's a fact. And the constant questioning about his age is one of the biggest challenges that his campaign faces. They know that. But let's not forget who 81-year-old Joe Biden is running against. 77-year-old, not a sprite, Donald Trump. Whoever you may wish was running, it is time to settle into the fact that there will be two baby boomers competing for the White House in November. That is what's happening. Now, after the special counsel's report came out, the president held a news conference on Thursday night. And while he had some good moments, no doubt, as a side note, I've missed you, our backs and forth there, Peter Ducey, making up Mexico and mixing up Mexico and Egypt in what otherwise was an interesting newsworthy answer about Netanyahu, which, by the way, didn't get much coverage, isn't great either. Look, President Biden makes gaffes. He has. He has for years. But if we're going to play the gaff game, let's play the gaff game for a moment. And we have a man who is 
totally corrupt and the worst president in the history of our country who is cognitively impaired. We would be in World War II very quickly if we're going to be relying on this man. A very big hello to a place where we've done very well, Sioux Falls. Thank you very much, Sioux Falls. So Sioux City, he built almost 500 miles of wall. Even the Obama administration says it in their stats. They uh, were interviewing him two weeks ago and they said, uh, what would you advise President Obama? Obama dropped missiles and they ended up hitting a kindergartner. That's the case. He's going to end up being indicted when he leaves office. They never report the crowd on January 6th. You know, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley is in charge of security. We offered her 10,000 people. A lot of people saw those documents. They didn't see the ones we had. We had them locked up and we had Secret Service all the time because I was president all the time. I wonder what Dr. Her would have to say about all of that. Curious. Well, the last one about being president all the time was not from a long time ago. It was actually just from yesterday. And we could keep going. Believe me, we could fill an entire show, hours of shows. But honestly, it's beside the larger point. Because Trump's gaffing is not even close to what the biggest risks of electing him are. And if we continue to focus on questions like who is the bigger gaff machine or what is the mental acuity difference between a 77-year-old and an 81-year-old, then we are all doing something very wrong. That is not what this election is about. Because in this election, one of the two candidates fomented an insurrection, didn't lift a finger to stop an angry mob from his supporters from storming the Capitol or step up to, en- to do anything when they were openly threatening to hang his very own vice president. One of the two candidates in this race has bragged about assaulting women, defamed her, and was found liable of doing just that. One of the two candidates in this race is openly threatening to use the Justice Department to go after his political enemies. One of the two candidates in this race is channeling Adolf Hitler in stump speeches. And one of the two candidates said just yesterday that he would encourage Russia to attack our NATO allies. None of that's hyperbole. It's all on tape. So are we really going to make this election about who confuses two states more frequently? What are we doing here? Yes, the age stuff is on people's minds. It is in the political ether. We shouldn't live in denial about that. It's also self-perpetuating, for the most part, by people who have never spent one second with Joe Biden. But we cannot let this become the dominant focus of this campaign because that is not what this election is actually about. Philippe Rhinus is standing by. He was a senior advisor to Hillary Clinton, and I think he probably has some thoughts about the echoes of James Comey and Robert Hur's report. We'll be right back. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Hey everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. 
So Robert Hur's report on Joe Biden isn't the first time that a legal victory has felt like a political liability somehow. I remember very well watching then-FBI Director James Comey when he announced that Hillary Clinton would not be charged in connection with her private email server. Good news, right? But what we, which should have been welcome news to the Clinton campaign was overshadowed by Comey's scathing criticism that Clinton was, quote, extremely careless. And the rest is history. I'm sure my next guest remembers that episode quite well, even better than I do. Joining me now is former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State and former spokesman for Hillary Clinton, Philly Rhinus. So, I mean, we've known each other a long time. Yes. This week has been a lot Thank to watch. Thank you for the reminder. Let me just, I mean, let me just start. How, yeah. how has this been for you to watch? Is it like bringing very, it back? Very familiar. And I just hope that this week, in terms of what Robert Hur has done, does not have the same impact on President Biden. Thankfully, we're 10, uh, 10 months away rather than 10 days away. That's true. There's tons of time and that does make an, make have an impact. I mean, one of the one of the things here I've been thinking a lot about is kind of how Democrats always play by the rules, right? Which is which is a good thing, right? There's a recognition of the separation of like, you know, powers of the Justice Department independence. Do you wish they were playing dirtier? Do they need to play dirtier in a diff- in some ways? I don't wouldn't call it dirtier. I would call it uh, fiercer. Uh, more Fiercer. ferociously. That's better, better. The Republicans um, in the long tradition of Ken Starr and Jim Comey have, you know, turned a ostensibly lawman into a political hitman in mm-hmm. the form of this report. It is so inappropriate that uh, it could be made into an ad tomorrow. And Robert Hur should just have ended it with, I'm Robert Hur and I approve this message. Pretty much. Maybe that wasn't. I read somewhere that the Trump team was taken aback by how negative it was. I mean, it was blind. It was blind analysis. But but still. So we've done a lot of strategic work for Hillary Clinton and others. What should the Democrats be doing right now about this? Well, to start, it's something that they should be doing less of. Joe Biden is the president. He's our de facto nominee. He wants to be reelected. I want to be reelected. Presumably, a Democrat party wants him reelected. Democrats need to start fretting a lot less and start defending him a lot more. That's one part of it. The second part of it is let's unpack. We talked about the accuser. Look at the accusations. You're talking about age. I'm sorry. They're the same age. Mm. If your father is 81 and your mother is 78, which Donald Trump is turning in a couple of months, Mm -hmm. you don't say dad married a younger woman. No. So that's a tie. You know, health. Please, I could spend the rest of your show talking about the difference in their health. Biden has been transparent. We know why he has an odd gait. It's because he, you know, he's getting older. Look, I like didn't to do physical therapy when he hurt his foot. He, I'm, wish, I'm sure he wishes he had now. Yeah, probably. Look, I th- would like to think that I am better at life now than I was 20 years ago, but I'm not faster. I am not, you know, in any way uh, able to walk upstairs any better. That's just life. Donald Trump has lied and concealed his true uh, health in terms of running to a, a, an army hospital in the middle of an afternoon, in terms of the severity of his COVID. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And then you have his mental acuity. Mm. Come on. I mean, I'll just leave it at that. And the bigger problem with his mental acuity is what he says when he's, you know, lucid. What, like, say, uh, suggesting that Russia can attack a NATO ally and we shouldn't do anything about it. He is telling us exactly what he wants to do. Let me ask you about something you just said, which is Democrats need to attack more because there's lots of ways to attack. Right. And as you yep. know, you and I have both worked in Democratic politics for decades. Yep. Everybody doesn't always agree. It's, it's the big umbrella is the big umbrella. There are a lot of Democrats fretting right now, as you said. Why it's what we do best. Why can't Gavin Newsom, Gretchen Whitmer, all these people who are great governors, but like, why yep. can't they run? 
Should they be attacking Trump on mental acuity? Should they be attacking him on his threat to democracy? Should they be attacking him on his threat to women's rights? All of it? How do they prioritize? I think it's all the above. I mean, part of the problem with what's going on now is, um, to his credit, Joe Biden makes few mistakes and they're far between, but then they're so easy to focus on. Joe, uh, Donald Trump, as you said yesterday, is talking about our friends should be attacked by by Russia. A week from now, if you ask me what the uh, the most recent thing Trump said, I probably won't remember because he is just saying it constantly. Joe Biden, I don't know what the verb is for what they're doing. And look, you know these people in the White House. Mm -hmm. They're smart. They don't need people from the outside sniping. But I wouldn't worry about him making mistakes. Just let just let it roll. Let the chips fall where they may. Flood the zone. Let him say what he's going to say. I mean, how many people know the actual name of the Egyptian president? I don't. And you know who definitely doesn't? Donald Trump. Uh, he, he definitely does not. Philippe, I fear we're going to be talking about this more uh, over the as coming— As horrible as it is, it'll be my pleasure. Over the coming <laughs> months, I'll look forward to talking with you more about Thank it. You. Thank you so much for coming you, on Jen. this afternoon. Uh, coming up, a story about why it's actually better to take a political risk if it means doing the right thing for your constituents and your country. Go figure. And later, the team spent a lot of this week— Digging in the MSNBC archives, and guess what we found? Some vintage Tucker Carlson moments that you definitely won't want to miss. Spoiler alert, he used to talk a little bit differently about Vladimir Putin than he does now. We'll be right back. So 15 years ago, which I can't believe it was that long, there was a big policy debate in Congress about health care, and the critics didn't exactly hold back. God will take care of health care. You dirty thieves! The whole point of this is to get everybody enrolled in the government health care plan. We've got a plan that increases deficit spending when we already have trillion dollar deficits. Radical communists and socialists. That something is not right with the health care plan. We now have leftist radicals in charge of your health care decisions rather than doctors. We're hanging by a thread. Democrat or Republican, for whoever senator or congressman vote for this bill, we will vote you out. That is just a snippet of how dismal the politics were around the Affordable Care Act. And the bill and the entire debate contributed, of course, to the rise of the Tea Party movement, which helped pave the way for MAGA. But that's an entirely different story for another show. The point is, back in 2010, the Affordable Care Act was political poison. In fact, a number of Democrats knew that. They knew that if they voted for it, they would probably lose their seats. And in her book about Nancy Pelosi, journalist Molly Ball writes, quote, Pelosi told colleagues she believed health care reform was an accomplishment so monumental it would be worth losing the majority over. The point of power to her couldn't be just to hold on to it. It had to be to achieve things that would benefit people. Imagine that. And the AC did benefit people. I mean, last year, over 40 million Americans received health care thanks to the Affordable Care Act. And the rate of uninsured Americans reached an all-time low of 7.7% in the first three months of 2023. But again, the members who voted for it did so knowing it was very unpopular at the time. They didn't do it hardly for their political advantage. They did it to help people. So that's one story about how to use power in Congress. Here's another. This time last week, Republicans finally had their white policy whale in their sights. Remember, for years, they've been chasing a strict draconian bill that would limit asylum seekers and give the president authority to shut down the border. And somehow, somehow, they had landed on a bipartisan deal that would have given them a lot of what they wanted. What had they been chasing this for so long? So it's a no brainer, right? Well, not exactly, because 
Donald Trump entered the chat. And Republicans did exactly the opposite of what Democrats did in 2009. They bent into the politics instead of pursuing the policy that, in their view, would have been good for the country. Because their boss, their leader, Donald Trump, worried it would help his opponent, Joe Biden. And of all the people to sum it up, it was the deal's chief negotiator, a conservative senator from Oklahoma, of all places, Senator James Lankford. This is the pen that I was handed at that desk when I was sworn in to the United States Senate. And I signed a book that was at that desk with this pen because I was becoming a United States Senator. Because the people at home sent me here to get stuff done and to solve problems. There's no reason for me to have this pen if we're just going to do press conferences. There's no reason for me to have this pen if we're just going to do press conferences. Look, to be clear, I'm not equating what the Affordable Care Act did with what this border bill would have done. It was imperfect. The point is, when given the chance to achieve their policy objective at their own political peril because of Trump, I mean, because of a different time, Democrats did it back in 2009. And Republicans had this chance last week. They chose the opposite path, not even because it was unpopular with the public, but because Donald Trump told them to. And that tells you just about everything you need to know about the two major political parties in this country right now. Coming up, Tucker Carlson's softball interview with Vladimir Putin made us think we should dig into the archives of Tucker's time here at MSNBC. And boy, did we. We'll show you what we found when we come back. Well, Donald Trump is not Vladimir Putin's only friend in America right now. As a noted conspiracy theorist and vocal critic of U.S. support to Ukraine, Tucker Carlson is already well known as a bit of a Kremlin mouthpiece. So in his two-hour interview with Vladimir Putin in Moscow this week, it's no surprise he mostly just sat there as Putin effectively steamrolled him with revisionist history and disinformation. Now, Tucker can take some modicum of credit for asking Putin to release Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich who's an actual reporter, who's been wrongfully detained in Russia on false charges of espionage. But for the most part, this wasn't an interview at all. It was a platform. And by giving Putin that platform without pushing back on many of the most outrageous claims, Tucker handed Putin a big PR victory. Notably, Tucker did not challenge Putin's baseless accusation that the United States orchestrated a coup in Ukraine in 2014. He was also silent when Putin made the obviously false historical claim that Poland, not Nazi Germany, was responsible for starting World War II. At the same time, Tucker never called Putin's unprovoked attack on Ukraine an invasion. He never asked about Russian atrocities or the deliberate targeting of civilian infrastructure. He never asked about Putin's political crackdowns or Russia's rigged elections or his assault on democratic institutions around the world. In fact, Tucker later said he thought Putin, a war criminal, was sincere in justifying his claims of Ukrainian territory. The thing is, Tucker might be useful to Putin, but he's no idiot at all. I mean, deep down, he must know that his public admiration of a Russian autocrat is a bit disingenuous and opportunistic. That's because Tucker used to express a whole lot of skepticism when it came to Putin and Russia. And he did so when he was on this very network. I'll tell you this, as James Carville once said to me, and I thought it was a particularly insightful point, he said, I wouldn't get on a Russian elevator. <laughs> well, I get, if I can just end by saying, 
I think it's quite a stretch, though, awfully generous of you to add Russia and China to the list of so-called civilized nations. But you're a big-hearted guy. <laughs> the way they want doesn't it. have our interests at heart. I mean, oh, I, I, I cross the street to it, save our lives. It, what do you really know about Vladimir Putin? We dig up the dirt on the man running Russia these days. The struggle between the British and Russian governments over the poisoning death of a former Russian spy in London heats up. Why are the Russians refusing to cooperate in the investigation? Do they have something to hide? Of course they do. Back then, Tucker also referred to Putin as a dictator and repeatedly slammed Russia for helping Iran's nuclear program. So while Tucker says he doesn't doubt Putin's sincerity, we certainly have reason to doubt his. That does it for me today. I'm looking forward to tomorrow night's show at 8 p.m. Eastern right here on MSNBC. Former Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance fought and won a battle with Donald Trump over presidential immunity before the Supreme Court. He's going to join me to talk about that as Donald Trump prepares to appeal on that issue. Plus, Joe Biden's personal attorney, Bob Bauer, will join me to give us his take on special counsel Robert Hur's report. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.